Thanks for joining in on another episode of An Inside Look. Our guest today is Lisa Curiel, a child psychologist who works for the Edmonton Public School Board. She explores the unique aspects of child development, as well as shares her personal and professional growth as she became a mother herself. Parent or not, this discussion is guaranteed to be interesting. Welcome back to another episode of An Inside Look. Today we have a special guest, Lisa Curiel, who is a registered psychologist. Uh, we'll be sitting down today uh, to share her story with us. How are you doing today, Lisa? Good, thanks for having me. Thank you. First off, um, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, um, as you said, my name is Lisa. I um, am a registered psychologist in the province of Alberta, um, which means I have a master's uh, degree in uh, master's of education, and specializing in school psychology. Um, my work has been focused is focused in the school age population. So I work I work with kids, early um, education, all the way up to high school. Excellent. Have you always wanted to become a child psychologist? Uh, yeah, I, yes. I, uh, I became interested in psychology when I was um, in undergrad, when I started um, uh, my undergraduate degree in arts. I took um, a really interesting course in behavioral psychology and it kind of just started from there. Um, I had a great professor and I, it just sort of, it took off and I started taking every psychology course I could get my hands on. And um, but I knew I wanted to work to work with people, and that's where I sort of started to look into how I could learn more about the field. So when when you were you know going through school and um, you know going through these different psychology classes, what made you choose to go into um, child psychology rather than focusing on adults? For sure, yeah, I. Um, I was able to start shadow, doing some job shadowing when I was an undergrad. So I was able to start shadowing a, a psychologist who worked with Edmonton Public and I got to see what they do every day. And one of the things that a psychologist does um, who works with schools, with kids in school, is um, what's called cognitive assessments. Basically, colloquially, an IQ test. And I remember sitting there totally fascinated, so interested, and I thought, yeah, this is it. This is what I'm going to do at that point in time. And so I made that my focus. Excellent. Sounds like just one moment, one spark that brought you there. Yeah, it was so interesting. And the psychologist that I was with was passionate about their work. And I got to sit in in classrooms and he, he just taught, taught me so much about the field. And I thought, yeah, that's it. This is it. I think when, when people really passion and they show us a passion for their profession, they, they kind of put that onto others and that passion does grow. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so how did you end up, so now that you've, you're obviously interested in doing, uh, working with children, how did you end up in the position that you're in right now? In the job that, or yeah. in the job that I have now? Um, it's a bit of a long, lengthy road to becoming a registered psychologist. Um, but obviously masters and defended a thesis, took a bunch of qualifying exams, did a practicum, and I got to start out actually in Calgary it was my very first job, and it, it was it was an amazing opportunity, an amazing job. I nothing could in school could prepare you for the work that I, I did there. Um, but I moved down to Calgary with my husband, and we I basically I commuted 
everywhere south of southern Alberta every day to work with kids in small communities who didn't have as easy access as to professionals as you might when you're living in a big city. And so we would go to them. And working with some of the most you know, medically complex kids, kids our province has, kids with um, you know, autism spectrum disorder, behavioral challenges, but then also compounding cognitive challenges, maybe some vision and hearing impairments. So, so these kids, um, have lots, lots of um, differences and got to work with them. That's very cool. Mm -hmm. um, it must have been such a, you know, um, just an empowering experience to be able to make such a large difference in, in the lives of so many different children, especially, you know, when you're commuting such a, such a far distance into a smaller community where they may not have access to, to these resources. What was one of the most memorable experiences or, um, I guess, like, times where you really, really felt like you made a huge difference in a, in a patient's life um, when you were working down south? I um, got to go to this very, very small town called Stavely, and it's just south of Calgary. At, at the time we went there, this town did not have a grocery store, did not have a coffee shop, like very small houses and a school attached to a library. And it was a small school. There was uh, a grade one, two teacher, a grade three, four teacher, a grade five, six. So they all taught two grades and then a principal and then some other staff. And we, I got to go down and we always worked in multidisciplinary teams. So it would be myself and a speech pathologist and an occupational therapist. And we would go down and we got to work all day with kids, with teachers, with the principal. And they could say, these are our concerns, and we could respond with, okay, these are our ideas. And because it was a small school, we could really see the impact that we were having, and we got to go, you know, all day. Sometimes it's, okay, you know, you have an hour, two hours with a, with a child. It was all day, and it was just so impactful to see what, what we could do um, in this community, in this school, as a team. That, that sounds amazing. I think that would be, especially as you're starting your career, I think that'll be something that would really put you in a path of knowing that you're doing what you like and you're making a difference. Mm -hmm. uh, so you mentioned that um, part of your job is not, is not only talking to kids and assessing kids, but is also, I'm guessing, educating the teachers and the staff as well. Could you tell us a bit more about that part? How has that been? Yeah. Um, a big part of it too is um, sometimes it's teachers that initiate the referral to me saying I have this concern or it's parents and teachers saying I have these concerns and so I try to address them and sometimes yes that includes assessment um, but what an assessment provides is uh, a deeper look into their concern and then I can provide targeted strategies and recommendations based upon that so if it's maybe there's some temper tantrums going on at school and at home, how can we figure that out? What are some strategies that we can implement at home and at school together? Um, maybe there's an academic concern. Maybe the child isn't learning to read as quickly as we do. Like, how can we start to implement supports and strategies so we can get this child reading? Mm -hmm. That's very cool. What are, can you tell us a little bit more or share some examples of, um, you know, what strategies you might recommend for Let's say, let's say a teacher has sent you a referral yeah. and has, has said, you know, uh, a child isn't 
learning as quickly as uh, some of the other children, mm -hmm. or maybe they're just not behaving as well. Like, what are what are some of the strategies that you would um, provide to, mm -hmm. to these teachers or to these students? For a learning concern, um, typically we would start off. Um, we would gather more background information, of course, but typically if there's a significant learning concern, we would start out with what's called a cognitive assessment, your IQ test. And um, what that, I think they get a, a bit of um, misrepresented. People think, oh, we're just gonna get you know a number and then we're gonna label you your IQ is this number. And I always like to say, that's a small, that's a part of it, but what we really get to do is see how this child learns and see how their brain works. And so, after I do that assessment, I can say, hey, these are the ways that your child is going to learn best. So when we teach them, let's teach reading like this, or let's teach this in this way. Um, so it gives us a really, just a clear picture of how a child's brain works. And so then we can really start implementing really targeted strategies. Mm -hmm. that, that sounds great. Um, one of the questions, actually something that that I thought of when you mentioned that is as you're doing these cognitive assessments that you mentioned, sometimes they get bad rep because they think it's just a number or whatnot. Mm -hmm. My wife is a teacher, so I, I know that this is something that she's faced in her classroom. Mm -hmm. um, when a child gets this sort of assessment and because it does have kind of a bad rep, do you find that you ever have struggle or pushback from parents where it's sometimes it's a little bit difficult to accept what, that your child may be struggling? Um, how do you usually deal with that? It's, a ch it's hard. <laughs> Um, because sometimes that number that parents um, can be very focused on isn't what they hoped. Mm -hmm. And um, that's really hard. And what, what I try to do is focus on the positive because every assessment, you're going to see areas of strength mm -hmm. and some areas of difficulty and really focus on the strengths and how can we take what we know about this child and know their strengths, and how can we now tailor everything to play out those strengths? Mm -hmm. Because the, the, the emotion, the feeling behind how a child feels at school, their self-concept is so impactful to their learning. So how can we make their learning the most positive experience by playing to their strengths? Maybe that child is really good with visual-spatial reasoning, which is one area of um, assessment. So they're maybe they're really good with their hands, and they're really good at building things and constructing things. So instead of writing a paper about a topic, why can't we have them create a diorama or create a poster? Mm -hmm. That would be playing to their strengths. Yeah. Which, which areas do you find that kids usually struggle in? It really varies and it depends on the child. Um, I often will see difficulties with that, um, the verbal uh, mm -hmm. comprehension piece. Mm -hmm language, hearing language, speaking language, that is a foundational skill um, that we really need kids to be exposed to at a young age. Lots of language, and not language from the television, and not language from the iPad. It's language, speaking, hearing, conversation. That is so important and so foundational. Unfortunately, I'm seeing more and more kids who really struggle um, with things like rhyming, with things like opposites, or how are these things the same? How is a pen and a pencil the same? Mm -hmm. Oh, you write with them both. Yeah. Those types of the verbal yeah. problem solving. So for, for kids that struggle with those things, and maybe for parents who, who find that their kids have struggled with those things, what, what would be some of the strategies you would recommend, or what are some of the things that we can do as a society, or as parents, or as the educational system to improve that? 
You know, and that's been my area of interest now because I was 16 month old and my focus has really been with him is, okay, how can we lay this foundation so that he is the best, the most, the best prepared he can be once he starts into kindergarten. Um, and what, what are the things that I really want to focus on and language, hearing language, that is a major focus of mine. I have two language is one. And it can be as simple as we're at the grocery store and I say, hey, let's get some carrots. And, you know, and just verbalizing what I'm doing. Okay, let's go find the milk. Those types of things. So, you know, it can be so easily integrated. And I think, again, that's another misconception is that we have to be doing these huge things and we have to be spending our time creating these things for our kids and it's going to be a full-time job and how, and then it just, how can anyone meet that kind of standard of parent who's so busy and working? And it doesn't have to be. It's just, yeah, doing verbalizing what you're doing, um, making language a part, a part of, a part of um, your life. That's my one. And then my other one is I'm, I'm pretty crazy about literacy. And I did my master's thesis in reading disabilities. So early literacy, I'm passionate about. Again, exposure to books having books around the house, going to the library. The library has so many great programs that are free. Um, so just that early exposure to, to words is another big one, which ties in with that early exposure to language. Absolutely. I think literacy is really, really important. Mm -hmm. Something that I hear from my wife's perspective, also as a teacher, she reiterates over and over again as well. But unfortunately, I hear that literacy is something that is becoming a problem in society, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. What do you think is contributing to that? I can sometimes get on, like, be hard on tech. <laughs> I can be, and I, I absolutely think tech has its time and its place and its importance. Um, but I think it's become our go-to. Um, and so, and then kids aren't necessarily reading. And apps are great. And there are lots of reading apps out there, and there's so much, but nothing can replace a book. A good old-fashioned hold-it-in-your-hands book. Mm -hmm. Nothing can replace, you know, you can see letters on an app, but nothing can replace wooden letters or magnet letters. Holding them in your hands, seeing things in 3D. So I think tech kind of um, gets gets in the way, and I think somehow we've almost lost that that reading is part of our everyday life. Spending, it doesn't have to be an hour. You don't have to spend an hour reading with your child a day. One or two books, and little kids' books are short, is plenty. Yeah, that's that's very interesting that you mentioned that, because as Dimitri was asking that question, that, that was like the first thing that came to mind. And I thought of my niece, who's you know five years old, and uh, she has an iPad, just playing with it all the time, right? What are different strategies that you recommend to parents to um, help them sort of balance that technology while, you know, trying to build up the, the ch uh, child's literacy as well, too. It's hard. And, you know, and there's times where you just, it's a strategy, you need it. You just have to, to use it. And I, I think making sure that there are limits and boundaries surrounding it. So mm -hmm. I think one of the things that kind of gets me is seeing a TV on in the car when parents are driving around the oh. city. Like, well, you know, there's lots of toys or your child could have a book or there could be lots of other things where you could be listening to an audio book, another really awesome strategy in the car. So having it as time and place. Yes, we're allowed tech. You can watch your show on your iPad for half an hour. You need a break from school after a long day. 
yes, mm-hmm. but there's a, there's a boundary around it. Mm-hmm. And again, I see a lot of kids with sleep challenges, mm-hmm. not having that tech a couple hours before bed, mm-hmm. putting it away, it's story time. So just making sure there's rules. Yeah. I know that tech more and more is starting to be integrated into the educational system as well. And obviously there are a lot of negatives to it, but what are some of the ways that you find that tech is being used in positive ways in the, in the education system? It's a positive yeah. addition, absolutely. Um, because we live in a tech world and what the education system is doing is teaching how children how to use technology in the way that it's intended. Mm-hmm. Teaching them how to do an internet search or a Google search, those are really important skills. Mm-hmm. Um, even type, typing, that's an important yeah. skill. So, you know, ha- integrating them in into um, school systems, it's great. Tech is also being used as, as a re- form of reinforcement in schools, and it's powerful, especially with children who have, um, you know, some behavioral challenges, things like that, using um, an iPad saying, hey, let's do some work, and then you get five minutes of iPad as a form of reinforcement. Mm-hmm. Again, a really powerful tool that we can be using with our kids and you know using it as a as a break as a as you know it's a time time to just take a break at school again it's i think it's teaching kids a lot of foundational skills that they need Mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely you know one thing that i um i thought about as well too as uh just switching gears a little bit here right um a lot of uh, i find that a lot of the members of the public, a lot of our listeners, they, they don't really understand the difference between a registered psychologist and a psychiatrist. Can you share with us a little bit more about the differences and how your practice is uh, different than uh, a psychiatrist? Sure. So it's like a psychiatrist is a medical doctor. Mm-hmm. They went to medical school for three or four years, whatever program that they went to, and then did a residency in psychiatry. Mm-hmm. A psychologist is not a medical doctor. So a psychologist um, did an undergraduate degree, typically in psychology, and then did a master's um, in psychology or related psychology field. Um, In Alberta, we don't need a PhD to be a registered psychologist. In many other provinces in Canada, you do need a PhD. So if you go to BC, um, a registered psychologist there would have a PhD. Gotcha. So what are some of the ways that um, that you find that our difference is just outside of the education system? So what, what are some of the differences between psychologists and psychiatrists, for example? The, if somebody's going to have an appointment with a psychologist, what are some of the expected results and how are they different versus then going to see a psychiatrist? You know, psychologists and psychiatrists, especially in the education system, um, are quite complementary. Mm-hmm. And we have some fantastic psychiatrists in the city who can support because we cannot prescribe medication mm-hmm. and so they provide can provide so that other piece um, mm-hmm. for seeing a child with ADHD or behavioral challenges they can really provide that extra missing piece that, that we can't give um, if you're going so with the psychiatrist appointment um, I can't really speak to what their appointments look like I'm, I'm really not not all that sure but if um, someone is going to see a psychologist like me they would you know, have my one-on-one time for a morning or an afternoon and um, typically, they would be seeing me to do a cognitive assessment, or I might be observing that child in class, mm-hmm. seeing how things are going. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm talking to the teacher, maybe I'm meeting with the parents. Mm-hmm. It can be very, um, but it's just addressing the concerns that are at school. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, very cool. So I know that you said that um, sometimes what your what your day to day may look like it, 
uh, includes actually being, you know, sort of in the classroom environment, observing, observing the child. Um, I think that's uh, I'm trying to trying to put myself in the shoes of a of a child and you know being surrounded by by uh, by their classmates. How how does that feel for? Like I guess, how do you communicate to, to the child to let them know that hey, it's okay. Like I'm just gonna be, you know, watching you and observing you. Like, what what is the messaging behind that? So when when I go into a classroom and I have a specific child that um, has been identified as a referral, um, I, I don't typically tell them that I'm there mm-hmm. for them, and then that way they just think that I'm just a nice little visitor. And if it's little kids, then they're all very excited that a visitor is in their classroom, and I just try to be a fly on the wall. So we don't make the child uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of how we go about it the best. That's very cool. Yeah. How do the children respond generally when you start having maybe closer one-to-one conversations with them? Then I typically would pull the child mm-hmm. out of the classroom and work with them one-on-one. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it depends on the age. Mm-hmm. Some, you know, and the way I phrase it is, oh, hey, we're going to do some really fun work together. Mm-hmm. And the nature of cognitive assessments too is they actually start off kind of fun. There's Things yeah. to do and things mm-hmm. to see. So they're little kids, especially, are typically very, uh, very, typically pretty excited mm-hmm. to be able to go do special work with someone. And junior high, maybe not so much. <laughs> <laughs> they're more worried about their, you know, how they look to their friends. And, and high school can be um, tougher mm-hmm. like that too. But uh, yeah. Do you ever face some resistance from the children? For sure. Yeah. Yeah, I've had kids flat out refuse to do mm-hmm. that and not want to to do it and. Um, they end up doing it. I've never had a child I can't I haven't been able to successfully complete an assessment yet with yeah. yet. So, um, but sometimes it can just take a little bit more more persuasion, more work. Mm-hmm. I can imagine in this line of work, as you see different children struggle with various things, uh, it can be really rewarding being able to help them. But mm-hmm. uh, I can imagine that it probably takes a bit of a toll as well of seeing some things and make it a little more difficult for you. Do you ever find the job to be challenging? Absolutely. The job can be challenging, um, definitely depending on um, where where in Edmonton you're working. Mm-hmm. Um, can be challenging sometimes to have the parents engaged mm-hmm. and um, there uh, because some you know, parents have their own mental health challenges mm-hmm. and are are on are really just you know working hard to provide the basics for kids. So to ask them of something else that mm-hmm. we're doing, it may not be in their um, their current ability to do that and that can be hard um but we just we try to work with what we have Mm -hmm. and schools are always very supportive and that's my focus is how can we make this six or seven hours a day that this child has the best it can be absolutely yeah and sort of on that note what are what are some um different strategies you use for you know managing stress in your own personal life I'm, that's a work in progress. I'm always trying to ma- figure out ways to manage, but I make sure I get to the gym. I think, you know, making sure that I, I my mental health is taken care of in yeah. terms of, you know, I feel like I've gotten an hour for me and that's at the gym. Um, I find that as long as I've had that one hour for myself, then I can do everything else for everybody else for the rest of the day and I'm okay. I know it's something that you've uh, kind of more on a personal note um, I know you've alluded that to the fact that you've kind of changed your perspective a little bit since you had a child of your own. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you find that since you had your child that it changed your 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 perspective as a psychologist as well as maybe even your own practice? Um, well, I think my since I've had my son, it's been this 
this reevaluation of um, what I want to do, how I want to practice, how mm -hmm. I want to try to support kids. And it's changed my view on how, um, how to, you know, how to expose mm -hmm. um, my son to, to learning. Mm -hmm. And my focus has been through play. Yeah. And I, I really think that um, if we can give our kids any opportunity as a young age, it is just to play, to explore, and to just give them. I mean, we all have seen the fancy toys and then a cardboard box put down yeah. to the next to the child. And what does that child typically gravitate to? The cardboard yeah. box, yeah. right? So just giving the, you know, my book shift, I guess, has been to just, kids are a blank slate. Just give them basic things and they they will blow your mind. Mm -hmm. They will surprise you. Yeah, great. Yeah, I, I can't even... Uh, begin to imagine. Yeah. Now, I think that um, a lot of times when we are as healthcare professionals, you know, there's this, uh, there's a notion of empathy, right, deploying empathy towards our patients. And a lot of times it's, it's very difficult because we may not necessarily have been in, in those um, shoes before. Yeah. Now, how do you, like, how has, um, you know, having your son uh, impacted that uh, aspect of your practice? Yeah, and that's something I think about a lot because I haven't gone back full-time to my previous job just mm -hmm. yet. And I think a lot about how, when I talk to parents, how that might shift now that I've had a child. And mm -hmm. you develop, I think, uh, more sensitivity mm -hmm. to the things that I'm telling parents about, those difficult issues. And I hope I was sensitive before, and, and but I think now... Um, it, there'll be more emotion to it because mm -hmm. I can re attempt to relate yeah. um, having my own child. There's many, obviously many parents that I, I can't relate to and mm -hmm. who have struggled with homelessness or, you know, being able to put food on the table, those types of issues um, I can't relate to, but I, I just try to, to be as empathic as possible and gentle, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of just puts you a little bit more into their shoes. Yes, yeah. as a parent, and I think I, I think that will be, at least from my understanding, what I've seen other psychologists who are parents, it is a um, a benefit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Are you worried about uh, having your child get out there as as he goes to kindergarten, as he goes to school? Totally. Yes. <laughs> totally. It is a worry for parents because yeah. in the end, you know, you think your child is amazing and. and they're just a group of, in a group of kids and it's hard out there for yeah. little kids. So yeah, I do worry just being able to make friends or yeah. to, yeah. And then just like you mentioned, you you just want to make sure to equip them with all the right tools that they can, they can yeah. face all the challenges and be able to overcome them. Yes. And you know, I really feel that kindergarten, the demands on kids for the knowledge they should have before they enter kindergarten is so, has gone to be huge. Okay. Like huge, you know, before kids in kindergarten, now it's expected that they know their alphabet and they should know how to print their name or, mm -hmm. and these skills that maybe we didn't look, expect until grade one are now demanded of a five-year-old. Mm -hmm. And that really puts a lot of, on parents. Mm -hmm. Not yeah. every parent has access to preschool. Yeah. It's expensive. And so that learning then falls on the parent. Mm -hmm. Well, what if the parent is working full time? And so how do you start to put your child on an even playing field when 
Johnny over there can spell and write the whole alphabet and do all yeah. these things. And so I think the demands, um, it's, it's, it, there's a lot of demand on parents. And I think that kindergarten and grade one, really the focus should still be play mm -hmm. and developing social skills and those types of things as opposed to, to rigorous academics. So do you think that these sort of potentially unrealistic expectations for everyone uh, could create some sort of these issues that may arise later on? In terms Absolutely. of children falling behind and things like that. For sure, children falling behind. But also, I worry about the emotional state of a child mm -hmm. when they enter kindergarten and realize that the child sitting next to them can do all of these things, yeah. can do addition, and I can't. And maybe they don't realize that in kindergarten, but in grade one, if they're consistently mm -hmm. having a tough time keeping up to their peers, how does that reflect on their self-concept? Mm, All of a sudden, the child might say, well, I don't want to go to school. Mm -hmm. And that should, that would be terrible to hear that in yeah. grade one. Mm -hmm. Because you know that school is a pretty long haul from grade yeah. one. So, yeah, I really worry about how that child's going to feel about themselves. Yeah. You, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, I think you're totally right. I think that, um, especially in... Uh, this day and age and especially at such a young age as well to you know kids are are very used to comparing themselves to to others right they compare their their skill sets to other people and um, you know this perceived um, intellectuals um, uh, status or you know what other kids may have and and I think a lot about, um, I try to put myself in, in their shoes and I can't even begin to imagine. What are some different ways um, you would recommend that parents can, you know, sort of help build up that self-esteem and encourage them to sort of grow organically? Yeah. I think one of the things, if you're finding a child is really struggling mm -hmm. at school and finding themselves not succeeding like their peers, that takes a conversation with the teacher to say, hey, how can we make this child feel more successful at school? Mm -hmm. Is it giving them a job? Mm -hmm. Little kids love jobs yeah. to be this teacher's <laughs> helper or whatever it is. Yeah. Or is it, you know, I've had teachers even say, okay, well, I created a math worksheet that mm -hmm. looks identical to everybody else's, mm -hmm. but it's three grade levels lower. Mm -hmm. And so that nobody knows that that child is doing something that's quite a bit easier. It looks the same. And maybe that child doesn't even know either. Mm -hmm. And so... Doing things like that, how can we make this child do little things to make this child feel more successful, more positive about themselves? Mm -hmm. And I think as parents, we can model, oh, hey, mommy, you know, didn't do a good job of this, or this is when I failed, or, you know, I'm saying failed, but this is when I made a mistake, and mm -hmm. this is how I learned from it, and this is how I try again, and really modeling for our kids mm -hmm. how we manage these situations, because we have them. Yeah. And uh, there's, you know, talking them out, Explaining how you deal with it and modeling it for your child is a powerful teaching tool. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I think we can essentially modeling by example is what you're saying. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's I think it is pretty important. I think a lot of people don't also don't consider that just showing that you've always had it great to your child or you're never impacted by anything may not be the right way yeah. of having things as well. Absolutely not. No, I agree with that. In that, if we always shield our child from mm -hmm. every emotion. When they do have those emotions that inevitably will happen, yeah. mm -hmm. my concern would be then, well, do they think that they're only the only one having yeah. those emotions, therefore is something wrong with them? Yeah. Mm -hmm. We don't have to expose to them the, you know, the 
the bigger, the, the entire situation if it's not developmentally appropriate. Mm -hmm. But it's sort of, it's discuss thinking about what you'd like Mike to sh share with your child, mm -hmm. what's developmentally appropriate, mm -hmm. and then speaking to them about it on their level. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Alluding to that shield shielding that you mentioned mm -hmm. that parents can do, I think everybody has heard sort of this that term of helicopter parents yeah. and whatnot. Uh, what role do you think that plays of having the parents actually protect their child from seeing some of the bad things that are occurring at school, bad mm -hmm. things that are occurring in the world? How important do you think that is? What is the balance that's needed? That's a really hard question. Yeah, um, yeah and I think... For little kids, the things that, you know, we want to talk about some of the current events that are going on, I think yeah. little, you know, six-year-olds yeah. don't really need to be known the breadth of that. But I think, you know, as a parent, you can use your discretion as to what you think your child can and can't handle. Mm -hmm. And um, not shielding them from everything, but saying maybe something bad happened in the world today and and, and keeping it, you know, not, not, you don't have to go into great detail, but letting them know that things do happen. Yeah. One thing that I'm kind of curious about is, you know, say that if, if I'm a parent, right, and, you know, I've identified that my, my child is struggling, right? Mm -hmm. What is the, I guess, like, I know that backtracking a little bit, um, earlier in the interview, we talked about how teachers can make referrals to, to a registered psychologist. What, um, like, what does that look like for a parent? Like, what, what sort of process would they go through? Sure. So the parent can always advocate for their child by going to the school and saying, hey, these are my concerns. Mm -hmm. Could we, you know, um, try to get my child an assessment? Mm -hmm. And the school would then hopefully follow up with that. Mm -hmm. um, another route parents can take is paying for an assessment privately. Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, that it can be um, expensive. Mm -hmm. um, but a parent can always go that route mm -hmm. and go see a psychologist to, to do an assessment for the child and pay for it out of pocket versus the school system, which mm -hmm. would um, be able to uh, maybe yeah. be able to, to provide mm -hmm. that for you. So there are a couple of different routes if you're concerned. Yeah. yeah. Do you think the system adequately provides enough support for, for children that are struggling right now as well as for parents? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, our school system, and I can only speak for Edmonton Public, that's where it does a fantastic job mm -hmm. with what we have. Um, there's a lot of need in yeah. Edmonton, and the amount of referrals we get are significant. And I can tell you without a doubt that every single professional um, within Edmonton Public, teachers, everybody within Edmonton Public is working the hardest they can mm -hmm. to support students in every way that they can. Yeah. Very cool. So within Edmonton, um, is I, I guess like for all schools that are part of the Edmonton public um, school system, mm -hmm. um, are all of them eligible to, to make these referrals to a registered psychologist? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we have a, tea, a, a large group of registered psychologists that work for Edmonton public. Mm -hmm. And um, if there's a concern, uh, the school would make a referral, not to me. They mm -hmm. have a, a contact who is above me who takes in all those referrals, reviews them, mm -hmm. and then um, gives them to, uh, to, gotcha. to, to, to me or to another psychologist. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, every school in Edmonton Good Public, point. again, I can't speak for the Catholic system, mm -hmm. um, would, if there's a, would have the opportunity to, to refer to them. Yeah. And if the child is identified to, to be struggling in certain areas after an assessment, mm -hmm. uh, what sort of supports does the system have in order to, to make sure that the child gets the help that they need and the assistance? Yeah, I mean, 
what Edmonton Public offers is absolutely phenomenal for programming and supports. As the psychologist, um, I would be, I always provide what we call recommendations at the end of a report. So every um, assessment that I do, I write a report. Mm -hmm. And the report is basically a document summarizing everything in mm -hmm. quite a lot of detail. Reports mm -hmm. tend to be pretty lengthy documents. Yeah. And um, at the end of that report, I provide strategies and recommendations for learning. Mm -hmm. um, but then Edmonton Public off also offers um, programming based upon the concerns. So, you know, the teachers are wonderful at implementing strategies, um, whether I recommend them or they know them on their own because they're teachers and know so much about child learning. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot, a lot of programming available for kids. Mm -hmm. that's, that's really good to hear. Yeah, and um, sort of uh, on on this on a very similar note, say that you have conducted an assessment, and you know, um, uh, as we know it, um, treatment often um, or sometimes consists of you know uh, non-drug measures, and and sometimes there are therapeutic measures that we need to use. Um, what is the what does the process look like if you've identified that you know uh, a child does need some medications to help support the uh, to support them. What, what does that look like to, you know, in terms of referral to a psychiatrist or referral to their family physician or what have you? Mm -hmm. That's a tricky one because my scope of practice, um, mm -hmm. I, 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 I try not to talk, I don't talk about medication gotcha. because it's really not within my yeah. knowledge mm -hmm. base. Mm -hmm. um, but what I always say to parents is, you know, Share, take this report. I always give an extra mm -hmm. copy. Take this report to your pediatrician, family mm -hmm. doctor, psychiatrist, whatever it is, mm -hmm. and you know, show it to them. Um, talk about it with them. Show them the diagnosis, mm -hmm. and they can also provide additional information that might be supportive mm -hmm. to your family. And it, sometimes parents will ask me about medication and mm -hmm. say, "What do I do?" And I say, "You know, it's an option. So please go go to your doctor, and you can um, you can talk about it further." Mm -hmm. And then just sort of a curiosity question, because I think a lot of people may not know exactly where the line lies, but do, can psychologists um, diagnose somebody with, let's say, ADHD specifically? Yes. Yeah. So that's um, anything in the DSM that yeah. a, a psychologist can can diagnose. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. Um, sort of switching gears a little bit, I know that... Um, like I know that one thing that uh, a lot of parents struggle with is, you know, balancing work and balancing, you know, uh, being a parent, balancing, you know, all, all of uh, all the things that life has to offer. You know, how, how has that been um, for you ever since you've had your, your son and what, what does that look? How has that shaped your life? It's hard. It's yeah. hard to balance everything, to try to get everything done in a day. And... Um, I think you just need to prioritize and mm -hmm. know that you're going to have to let go of some things and that not everything is going to get done mm -hmm. and and try and just and just accept and just say this is what's happening and that and accept that um but it's a hard balance mm -hmm. and sometimes you feel rushed thinking okay i got to get all this work done during his nap time and yeah. you feel rushed yeah. and i think it's a, it's an ongoing evolving shifting changing balance for me because I think kids are always shifting and changing and mm -hmm. so what works last week might not work this week yeah. so it's just being able to be flexible mm -hmm. and as your child as your son gets older and as he goes to school and preschool and, and kindergarten 
Are you, what are your personal professional goals? Are you planning going back to your old job? Are you looking to do something else? Yeah, so I mean, I, I plan to go back to Edmonton Public. Um, I am off for a little bit longer. And then um, I'm also looking at a few different things. Um, there's some great new, uh, great new center called Pine opening up in Edmonton. And so I'm hoping to do some work with them. Um, I started an Instagram page, which has, you know, been another way to, to uh, just another creative outlet for me. Mm -hmm. And I started developing some workshops for parents. Um, I have one coming up on childhood anxiety and temper tantrums. So that's been interesting too, to try to provide more resources mm -hmm. for parents. And I just think there's so much out there to be learned and to be explored that um, I just want to try and take opportunities. I think that's fantastic. I especially the workshops uh, sound like a great idea. I think there are so many parents out there that just don't know which direction to take or mm -hmm. what to do. Mm -hmm. How is it? How do you find has been the response to these uh, workshops? I'm just getting going. I haven't even delivered my first one yet, um, but the response has been positive, mm -hmm. and um, I've got some people kind of ready, enrolled, and ready to go. It's coming up in April, mm -hmm. and so yeah, I think you know. There's so many parenting books out there and there's so much information and it's so, even for me, it's so overwhelming to go to chapters or to look on Amazon for a book, yeah. a parenting book, and this is, and then try to find a good one. <laughs> it's too much, right? Yeah. So to have someone in a couple of hours be able to give you some direction, some strategies in a mm -hmm. few hours, um, I hope is, you know, makes that, simplifies the process for parents. Yeah, absolutely. So where, where can people find out more about these workshops and where can people find you on? Um, I know you mentioned Instagram. You're starting to share a little bit more uh, practical tools that parents can use. Where, where can people find you to, to learn a little bit more about that? Yeah, so my Instagram is YEG Child Psychologist. Um, the workshops that we'll be doing are through Pine. So Pine is on Instagram as well. And so um, you can definitely find more details on there. They're, they haven't quite opened up yet, but it's coming and we're hoping to um, hoping to start that up in the coming months. And yeah, those are my two many. And what, what is Pine about? So tell us just a little bit more about Pine. Yeah, so um, I'm still pretty new mm -hmm. in to be introduced to Pine, but it's a um, multidisciplinary um, uh, family-focused health um, center. So it's run by a physiotherapist and a psychologist, um, not myself. And um, they are basically we want it to be a, a place for families, primarily women, pre and postnatal parents, kids to be able to go to access support that they. So there'll be like massage therapy and fitness classes and yoga and dietitian. So there's a wealth of supports mm -hmm. that parents um, can access for their families. Very cool. That's really awesome. Um, and and just to wrap things up here, what what is uh you know what is one thing that you really want to share with with parents? You know, one one thing that you really want the public to know that um, they they may not at this point in time. Parents to know about the field. Of yeah, about uh, about your practice, or about uh, about, um, or I guess like one lesson that you you really want them to take away. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think one thing about my practice that a lot of people don't know is that all psychologists are therapists and counselors, and that mm -hmm. we're going to sit down for a one-on-one -on -one talk therapy mm -hmm. session. 
I don't do any of that in my practice, and I would I would never like it's definitely not my area of strength. Um, but that psychologists um, have a wealth of knowledge in many different areas, and so uh, by talking to one, you can expect a bunch of different um, areas of expertise. Thank you very awesome. much again. We really appreciate your time you. and really enjoy this interview. Thanks Thank for you. Me. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hey guys, thanks for joining in on another episode of An Inside Look. Today, we had the chance to interview Lisa, who's a child psychologist and a mother, and she shares with us three valuable lessons she's been able to acquire through her experience. So number one is self-care. She talks about how it's really important to take that hour outside of your day just to focus on yourself because ultimately you can't take care of others when you haven't been able to take care of yourself. Number two is learning. She talks about how learning should not be, you know, this uh, cookie cutter approach where we just apply the same principles for, for all, all but the children, but rather they should be individualized to, to each child's needs. And number three is creating a supportive environment. It's important to create that environment where the child can learn and grow. And that involves, you know, letting them be able to be creative and play. That's it guys, hope you really enjoyed this video. If you did, please subscribe, hit that like button and comment below, you know, what are some of the valuable insights that you've been able to acquire? And that's it, until next time.